Let's pray. Father, it is our delight to come underneath your word every Sunday and really every day of our lives. But we come this morning to uh, this passage of Scripture, and, and Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth you want us to see here. Help us to understand it, help us to receive it, and help us to obey the word that you have given us. And we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, turning your Bibles with me back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and we're making our way slowly through this section known as the parable of the sower. And this morning we come to verses 13 to 20, and we won't, of course, cover all of that this morning, uh, but we will we'll do the best we can to make some progress in these verses. But this section, verses really verse 14 to 20, is our Lord's explanation of the parable of the sower. And so far we've said that this parable is, the meaning of it is really simple. The meaning is this, the way one responds to the word of God is determined by the condition of the heart. The heart, the status of the heart, determines one's response to the word of God. That's always been the case, and it will continue to be the case down on into eternity. And the reason for this is because God has created us all so that we live out of our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, right? It's from the heart that the springs of life flow. Everything we do and everything we say comes out of our hearts. Hearts, not the physical organ, of course, but the invisible part of you. That's what the Bible calls the heart. It's the unseeable dimension that makes up every human being. Within our hearts, biblically speaking, resides our thinking, our affections, our volition, or our desires. All of that resides in the heart. And so, biblically speaking, we often say that the heart is the real you. The heart is who you really are. It's who you really are. What you think, what you want, what you feel, all of that happens in your heart. Now, you can't see my heart. I don't think so. And I can't see your heart. And that's, that's not an ability that God has given us uh, to have. He hasn't given us the capacity to look directly into the heart of others. We don't have x-ray vision in that way. But the Lord has that. The Lord is the one who looks upon the invisible you. He knows who you really are. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way. It says that God searches the heart and tests the mind. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God looks not as man looks, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intention of thoughts. 1 Kings 8, 39, God alone knows the hearts of all the sons of men. This is God's prerogative. Hebrews 4.12 says that God is able to weigh the thoughts and intentions of your heart in such a way that there is no possibility that you could ever hide anything from Him. Before Him, before His all-seeing eye, Every part of you is laid bare. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Every thought, every intention, every motive, every desire, the Lord knows it. And according to 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord has appointed a day when He will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. So then, only God has the capacity to see 
inside the human heart and to reveal heart motivations. That's what God does. You don't have that capacity, and neither do I. However, God has not left us totally in the dark when it comes to knowing our own hearts and the hearts of other people. While we can't know the hearts of others directly because we don't have that capacity, Jesus taught His disciples that there was a way they could know the hearts of other people indirectly. Let me show you what I mean. You you might want to flip. I told you to go to Mark, but you might want to flip over to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, Jesus gave His followers some very clear instructions on how they could perceive the imperceptible heart of man. It's Matthew 7 and verse 15. Jesus warned His followers, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So on the outside... These are kinds of people who present themselves as shepherds, or really as sheep. Yet, on the inside, in their hearts, Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. Meaning that their internal desire, that's happening in their heart, is to consume the flock. You see that? But on the outside, of course, they give all the right show. They say all the right things. And they look just like the rest of the sheep. So the question is, how are we able to know the ravenous heart that's inside of this false teacher? How how can we, mere humans, be able to see the imperceptible heart? Jesus says it's actually pretty simple. Look at verse 16. You will know them. How? How? By their fruits. It's not that you're somehow supernaturally given x-ray vision to see the inside of the hearts of other people. No, you will know them by their fruits. That's indirect knowledge. Direct knowledge would be, I can look inside your heart and see what's going on there. You don't have that. Indirect knowledge is, you will know them by their fruits. He goes on, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verse 20, So then you will know them by their fruits. You want to know the heart? Look at the fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that we can evaluate the motives of other people's hearts. That's the Lord's prerogative, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. But He's showing us that we can know what's going on in the heart of someone by the life they live, effectively. The fruit, then, of their life is the real demonstration of their heart. It doesn't matter what someone says in the end. You can say all the right things. It's the fruit of their lives, says Jesus, that actually tells you what kind of tree they are. So then not only does the status of the heart, this is what we've been looking at in the parable of the sower, it's not only does the status of the heart determines one's response to the gospel, But the fruit of one's life demonstrates the condition of the heart. You see that? So the status of the heart determines one's response to the gospel, but the fruit that comes out of one's life actually also demonstrates the status and the condition of the heart. And that's what we're going to see in verses 14 to 20 as we work through Jesus' explanation of this parable. All right? So why don't you stand with me and we'll... Really, we'll start in verse 13 and we'll read down through verse 20. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. 
These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Verse 20, And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, Thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. You may be seated. So we finally come this morning to the explanation of this really insightful parable of our Lord. And the explanation really begins in verse 14 with really answering the question, who is the sower? Who is the sower? Chapter 4, verse 3, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. Okay, Jesus, who then is the sower? In verse 14, we see, quite simply, the sower is the one who sows the word. And of course, the word here is the word of God. We see that in the parallel account in Luke 8, verse 11, which says this. The seed is the word of God. Very straightforward. But notice, Jesus doesn't say, I am the sower. He does say that elsewhere. He says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way. And you would almost anticipate him saying, I am the sower. Essentially, I'm proclaiming the truth and all of these people who are responding in unbelief, the, the reason for that is their wicked hearts. But he doesn't say that. He says, he leaves it general. He says, the sower is the one who sows the word. And I think, of course, everything Jesus did was intentional. But I think the reason he doesn't explicitly identify himself as the sower becomes evident when we look at the larger context. Of course, Jesus is the one who has been preaching the word. And and he is the one who would be regarded as the most immediate referent of what it is to be a sower. But he doesn't say, I am the sower. So let's think about the context. Remember, Jesus has appointed 12 apostles. He's accumulating uh, authentic disciples around him who would eventually become his representatives on earth after he ascends into heaven. The plan is for these men to follow in His steps. And they will soon be the ones who will go out and preach the word of the kingdom that they've heard Jesus preach. Now remember, these were ordinary men like you and I. And they're following in the footsteps of the most powerful, penetrating teacher-preacher to ever have walked the earth. They are going to be receiving the baton from Jesus. And can you imagine the thought? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to follow behind Jesus after He has just preached? I mean, we, to, a trite example of that would be, you know, no one wanted to be the guy who replaced Charles Spurgeon. Now, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy to replace John Calvin. You don't want to be the guy to replace John MacArthur. Because you know that whatever you do, the best you can do is going to fall infinitely short of the talent and skills of these other guys. Now that is a trite example compared to following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And these men are going to be called by Jesus to go out and be His earthly representatives. And they know they don't have what it takes. They know it. And they have heard, they've been around the best preaching to ever have come on this planet. 
They listened to Jesus preach time and time again, and then they themselves would soon then be traveling around proclaiming the same message of the gospel. And the reality, as we see in the book of Acts, is that that will not always go well for them. Peter did a great job, Acts 2, but Peter got no credit for that. It was the Holy Spirit that came. Uh, But things in the book of Acts are going to get really difficult for these men. It will not always go well for them. So they are going to be on mission, as it were, proclaiming the truth, and they will very soon be feeling the pain of laying it all out there in preaching, only to be rejected, scorned, stoned, and drug out of the synagogues again and again. And of course, we, we talked about this a few weeks, weeks ago, the temptation for them would be to think, well, of course, they're going to reject the message. I'm not Jesus. I can't preach like Jesus. So maybe I need to modify things a little bit. Maybe I need to streamline my message a little bit. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I need to not be so direct. Or maybe I need to be a little more direct. Maybe it's I need to soften up a bit. Or maybe I need to harden up a little bit. Or maybe I need to shorten my sermon. Or maybe I need to lengthen a little bit. Maybe if I was a little more somber. Or maybe if I was a little more funny. Or maybe if I was a little more entertaining. And this sort of navel-gazing that could happen, these guys are going to be right there in the middle of it. And their tendency, just like your tendency and my tendency, when we share the gospel and it's utterly rejected, is to think, Oh, I really blew that one. And that was my fault. I really blew it that time. And Jesus, of course, knows this. He knows that we are tempted to think um, that everything has to be perfectly aligned and we have to deliver the message perfectly. It's kind of like, you could call it like the Goldilocks doctrine. Everything has to be just right for them to receive the message. The stars have to align. I have to say exactly the right way. Not too hard, not too soft, not too long, not too short. All of this has to be totally dialed in if someone is going to believe the truth. But we know that's not true. I mean, we are not Arminian. We understand that the Lord God is the one who saves people. He's the one who gives new hearts. He's the one who does this work. But somehow, when we are preaching, proclaiming the gospel, discipling our children, whatever, we are prone to think everything hinges on our deliverance. And Jesus, of course, knows this. And so I think what Jesus does here is he keeps it general for the sake of his disciples, both then and now, so that we will see that the responsibility of the sower is simply to sow the seed. Jesus is wanting to extend this principle beyond his own teaching out to every man, woman, or child, whoever has the courage to stand up and proclaim the truth. And they can do so boldly knowing that results are not in their hands. Those belong to God. Responses have to do with the condition of the heart of the hearer. And ultimately, responses to the gospel, those belong to God. Right? And so we can stand with courage and boldness knowing that our responsibility is to simply take the seed of the word and faithfully sow it. It's not faithful for the farmer to gather up the seed and just put it on his bookshelf. That's not faithful. It's not faithful for, for the farmer to get with other farmers and pull the seed out and analyze it and talk about how wonderful it is, but never go sow that seed. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is when you take the seed that you've been giving. If you're a Christian, you have been given the seed of the Word. You have it. We would call that the gospel. You've got it. Faithfulness requires you to take that seed and give it to others. Now here's an easy application. How are you doing? Are you taking the seed and sowing it? When was the last time You reached down into your bag and shared the gospel with someone. Are you too afraid to sow because you think you're a bad farmer? You think it might fall on hard soil? 
Are you afraid to sow because you don't want to be rejected? Friends, you are not being rejected when you sow the seed. It's not about you at all. Right? It's about the soil and the seed and the God who gives life to the dead. You are just an agent. You just take the seed and you give it. That is what a farmer does. If you sit on the seed that you have been given, you will be a bad farmer. I will tell you just straight, if you've not shared the seed, the gospel with someone recently, I will say that you sort of look like a bad farmer. And the Lord would call you to repent. Farmers don't just hoard seed. I mean, not that I know of. They don't make much money if they do that. So we have to take the seed and give it. The faithful farmer takes what he's been given and casts it into the soil, and he leaves the rest up to God. It's really that simple. It's amazing to me, actually. The more that I study, the, this study in the Gospel of Mark has been wonderful for me. And, and so much of the wonder of it all, of course, is looking at Jesus week in and week out. It's really wonderful. But the simplicity of it all. We overcomplicate so much. And here is Jesus sort of condensing the whole apostolic endeavor with this simple analogy of a farmer who sows a seed. That's all you got to do. That's all, that's all I need from you. Take this seed and go cast it into soil. And I'll take care of the rest. Isn't that amazing? And it's freeing. The simplicity of it all frees us to see with clarity what the Lord wants from us so that we can turn from our laziness or from our bad farming techniques and take up the technique of the Lord. Just sow the seed, throw it out there. Sometimes it'll fall on hard soil. Sometimes it'll fall on good soil. You don't know. Just throw it out and trust the Lord with the rest. Okay, so that's the sower. That's the Lord's explanation of the sower. It's anyone who proclaims the word of God. Now let's look at the soils. That's verses 15 to 20. Now we've alluded to this multiple times, but the soils each represent the heart condition of those who hear the word of God. Now if you're asking, where does he get that from? Well, Matthew 13, 19, the parallel there makes it clear that the heart, the soil, is the heart. Now, of course, what we see in this explanation from Jesus is that anytime the Word of God is proclaimed, the sower can expect a variety of responses. No one responds, no one farmer gets the same response every time he casts out the Word. But all of these responses are, are grounded in the condition of the heart. And what we're going to see in these first three soils, so there are four, and we'll look at three, the first three, there, the first three soils are essentially, you could call it the anatomy of a rejection. The anatomy of a rejection. It's, it's an, a sort of x-ray vision into the heart that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, that rejects the Word of God. And this parable gives us insight into what's going on at the heart level when someone rejects the Word of God, either immediately like the Pharisees or eventually like many of the people in the crowds. So let's look at these one by one. First soil, and we'll call this one the hard-hearted hearer. The hard-hearted hearer. This type of hearer is first mentioned in verse 4. Look there with me. Jesus said, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Now the road, you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, is referring to the pathway. It's that hardened trail. A farmer would have plowed his field, but he would have had to walk a trail as he is sowing his seed into the soil. And as he walked this trail, this path, over and over again, the soil under his feet would have gotten very hard. Naturally, any seed that fell onto this hard path uh, would not have been able to penetrate into the soil and would have immediately become 
free lunch for the birds. Now, the explanation of that is in verse 15. Jesus says, These are the ones who are beside the road where the, where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. This is a kind of hard-hearted hearer whose heart has been calcified and hardened by pride and rebellion, so much so that whenever they hear the Word of God, the Word bounces right off the heart. And because of that, Satan is able to come in and take away the Word which has been sown in them. Now, it's a, it's a really interesting way of putting it in verse 15. So we want to think about that a little bit. What does it mean for the devil to come in and snatch up the word from the heart? Well, I would say it's important for us to understand, especially in light of verses 10 to 12. That's what we looked at last week. Um, so if you weren't here for that, I would encourage you, if this is perplexing to you, listen to that sermon from last week, and I think it will help you understand a little bit about what's happening in verse 15. But let's get in here a little bit, okay? So what is happening here is that the devil is able to snatch up the preached message in the case of the hard-hearted hearer, I will argue, because the individual has already rejected the word of God and his heart is hardened. And as a result of their hard-heartedness, their unbelief, they have zero sensibility to the Word of God. You know people like that, don't you? Zero sensibility to the Word of God. And so the message, you, you cast it out there, you sow the seed, and, and you almost anticipate what's going to happen. This is going to be like me you know, bouncing a, a, a rubber bouncy ball on the concrete. Right? Nothing's going to happen there. It's just going to bounce and it's going to roll along. And sometimes when you share the gospel with someone, it sort of feels that way. This kind of hearer, his heart is so hardened that he has no desire to hear anything about the Lord, no desire to hear anything about anything transcendent. He is hard-hearted. And because of that, the devil is able to swoop in and snatch up the word. This kind of hearer, though, he, he is responsible for his hard-heartedness. He can't blame God for it. We saw that last week. And, and neither can he blame the devil for it. He can't say, oh, I would have received it. But the devil was just so quick. He snatched up the message before I could lay hold of it. No, the, the, from a horizontal perspective, this kind of hearer is the kind of person who simply refuses to humble themselves and believe God. And the result of their pride, when the freedom and the free offer of the gospel is given them, because of their pride and hard-heartedness, they look at the freedom that Christ would give, and they say, no, I would rather stay enslaved to the devil. And as a result, they remain enslaved to the devil and continue to live under his tyranny. Now, I'll remind you that that is the status of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever, if you do not have Christ, you are enslaved to your flesh and you are enslaved to the devil. That's Ephesians 2 2, where Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Every unbeliever lives under the dominion of his own flesh and the rule of Satan. And one of the things that Satan does to proud, unbelieving hearts that are under his dominion is that 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's shocking. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I'll read it again. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. So Satan, those under his own dominion, he blinds their eyes to the gospel. That's his delight and his design is to keep men in their pride and to blind them by it so that they will effectively live in perpetual opposition to God and His kingdom. You can't serve yourself and serve God at the same time. Right? If, if you, by the deception of your own flesh and by the deception of Satan himself, can think that you are some sort of worthy um, rival to God and you want your own little kingdom, well, that kingdom will always be juxtaposed to the kingdom of God. You can't serve yourself and live for yourself and live for the king as well. And Satan's design is to have unbelievers blinded in their pride and unbelief so that they live in perpetual opposition to God just like Satan. And so in this case, when the gospel comes to one who is so hardened by his pride and unbelief, it bounces right off of him and the devil sweeps it off the path lest by some chance it germinate and begin to take root. Now, of course, we're talking about this from a human perspective. It Were it not for God's divine intervention, that's where you and I would be as well. That's so we understand that. We understand that vertically speaking, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins without God, without hope in the world. That's where we were. Until God, in His grace, came and enlivened us. He gave us life. Ezekiel 36. He gave us a new heart. He transfers the heart of stone and He puts in a heart of flesh that can actually feel and respond to the gospel. We call that regeneration. When the Lord regenerates us, then we respond in conversion with faith and repentance. But in this parable, we're looking at things really from a horizontal perspective. And so from the horizontal perspective, this person hardens themselves so much, the gospel bounces off their heart, the the devil is able to pluck it away, take it away, and so the person remains in their sins. Now, of course, I, I think, given the larger context, this is immediately talking about the religious leaders. Think about that. I mean, they are the ones who have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who have deliberately, decisively rejected the Messiah and said, we don't want that. And so I think Jesus is talking specifically here about the religious elite. They were, you'll remember, so proud, so high-minded, so elitist that they were effectively blind to the Messiah that the loving God sent them to be their Savior. And so they reject him and crucify him. Talk about hard-heartedness. And again, that's where we would be were God in grace not to intervene. Pride is the natural bent of every human, and pride, I would say, is a self-focus that numbs you to the Word of God and blinds you to reality. That's what pride does. It blinds you to reality. And that's exactly what happened with the religious leaders who rejected our Lord. All right, so that's soil number one, the hard-hearted hearer. And we spent a lot of time thinking about them in verses 10, 11, and 12, so we'll move on to soil number two. And we'll call this one the superficial hearer, the superficial hearer. We first meet this soil type or this heart type in verse 5. Other seeds, said Jesus, fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. So remember, this is not referring, you know, the rocky ground here is not like gravel. No self-respecting farmer would sow seed in gravel. I think we all get that, maybe. But this is not gravel. This is referring to a layer of bedrock that would have been just below the surface of the soil. 
It would have looked like good soil to the farmer. He would have looked out and said, okay, yeah, this, this is the good soil. Of course, I, the, the pathway, that's not going to receive the seed. But out here, this looks good. The bedrock itself would have been invisible to the farmer and he would have cast his seed on it. And it would have been no surprise to him to see growth from that seed. But it actually, what happens here is that the seed grows up in a really surprising fashion. It sort of outpaces all the other uh, seeds. It says, immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. So it looks very promising. Lots of life initially, lots of excitement, lots of vitality there. But there was a serious problem. It had no depth of soil. And so verse 6, when the sun comes up, it scorched the little plant and it withered away. Looked great at the first, but then when the sun came out, it was destroyed. And so then in verse 16, Jesus tells us what, what this means. What does this, what does this mean, Jesus? He says this, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So we'll call this, as I said, the superficial here. And this really is, verses 16 and 17, it gives us the anatomy of a superficial hearer. And there are a few things that stand out from these two verses that we want to look at. First, let's think about what drives the superficial hearer. What drives the superficial hearer? It's not immediately obvious from the text, but Jesus emphasizes something in verse 16 that gives us an idea as to what is in the driver's seat with this type of hearer. Look at verse 16. They hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves. Now, I want to point something out to you that verse 17, the word and there, is actually making a contrast. You could, you could legitimately translate it as but. They hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy, but they have no firm root in themselves. It's making a contrast between the initial joy, excitement, immediacy of it all, and we could call that emotionalism that we see in verse 16, and then it contrasts that with the rootedness, the depth of verse 17. So the contrast is between immediate joy and experience and feeling and all of that versus the depth of the root system. And it's a contrast between emotion, we could say, and depth. And the issue with the superficial here is they begin with lots of emotion. Lots of wonderful, euphoric, great feelings. Everything is great. Oh, this is the most wonderful message I've ever heard. I love it. It's great. I will just want to be around other believers all the time. This is what I want to be all about. They're over the top excited, and actually their sort of excitement outpaces the excitement of the ordinary churchgoer. And you think, wow. This looks great. This is promising. This is really exciting. But in the end, it turns out to be nothing more than emotionalism. It's superficial. And because of the superficiality of it all, they eventually reject the Word of God. Emotionalism is not enough. So we could say this. The t this type of superficial recipient of the word, the superficial hearer, is the sort of person who makes their decisions primarily based on how they feel. That's how they decide. 
It's emotionalism. And I'll say that is the common way that folks in the 21st century make decisions. It's very dangerous. So here is this emotionally led individual. All of a sudden, one day, they're going along their merry way, and they hear the message of the gospel. And a message, of course, the gospel is a message that pulls on emotions. It should cause us to weep and turn in authentic repentance. But they hear the message of the gospel, and it sort of pulls on their heartstrings, their Emotions light up, and and out of all of this inflammation of emotion, they decide, I'll follow Jesus. That's what what I need. That's what I want. That's, That's what will make me truly happy. That's what will bring me satisfaction. That's what will bring my life completion. And notice, who's at the center of all those sort of statements? That's right. Jesus is the missing piece in my already perfect life. I can use Jesus as sort of a necklace on my outfit of life. It's just a little accessory that will complete it all for me. And they get sort of swept up into the hype and emotion of it all, and they are still thinking about themselves supremely. And so they say, well, yeah, why not follow Jesus? He's going to make my life better. Now, there is a type of evangelism that actually plays into this kind of hearer. It's like altar call, let's play on emotions, let's build the music up, let's get people to you know, make decisions for Jesus. And what happens is, I mean, you think that even with like Billy Graham crusades. I mean, look at the statistics of those who persevered. There's a type of evangelism that plays into this kind of hearing that is very dangerous. And so this person comes along, they are swept up in all the emotion of it, they're excited, they're thrilled that now they have their life completed because Jesus is going to make them happy, you know, wealthy, wise, all of that. And and if you ask them, hey, why, why are you wanting to follow Jesus? They would say something like this. He brings me the greatest joy. He makes me feel wonderful. He makes me happy. Or some other sort of self-oriented, feelings-based reason. Now listen. Jesus does make you happy. (laughs) Right? You should say amen to that. (laughs) He doesn't make you sad. Um, he does bring us joy. But it's, it's a joy that comes on the other side of self-sacrifice. It's a joy that comes on the other side of obeying Him. It's a joy that comes really from us by surprise. And, and I'll, I'll sort of tell, tell you what I mean, show you what I mean by that in just a minute. So they follow Jesus because of their self-centered, sort of feelings-oriented drive to sort of top off, you know, have the cherry on the top of their lives. That's what drives them. They don't follow Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They don't follow Jesus because He is the Son of God and Savior of the world. They follow Jesus because He makes them feel good. Do you see the difference there? As I said, emotions are not bad. Emotions are part of our makeup. I mean, God made us this way. God experiences joy and anger and satisfaction. And these, God has made us this way. So, so we don't want to you know, downplay joy or happiness or satisfaction. That's not what we're doing here. But if you follow Jesus because you want to be happier, you will be disappointed. If you follow Jesus because you just want to have joy, you will be disappointed because you will prove yourself to be a superficial here. You're just after Jesus to get what you want. 
And what is the gateway into the Christian life? Mark 8.34 If any man would come after me, what must he do? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And you're not wanting to do that. You're just wanting to work around the crucifixion part and get the benefit of Christ without the cross. You want the crown without the cross. Do you see that? So, so here's, my, here's the point I want to make. Emotion, feeling, all of that is good because it's God-given. And it, they're wonderful. However, God has not designed us to make our decisions based off of emotion. We are not designed to be led by emotions. I hope you know that. We are not designed to be people who are led by our feelings, our instincts, our emotions. You know who are led that way? Animals. Right? Animals follow their instinct. They're not made in the image of God. They can't exercise their reason and think. We are created in God's image. First and foremost, we are to be led by the truth. That's what leads us. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the word of God. And by God's grace, when truth is in its proper place, feelings come and feelings follow. But we have to remember that. Truth is the Clydesdale. Emotion is the carriage. Right? Truth is the horse. Emotion is the carriage. The truth will pull the carriage even if the carriage is in pretty bad shape. Right? If your emotions are not there, the truth is still the truth and the truth still marches on. What we want to do is we want to get with the truth and follow the Lord regardless of how we feel. And by God's grace, as we follow the, tr- the truth, our feelings eventually follow. And friends, when you have that alignment of the truth and your feelings, that is bliss. That's bliss. That's joy. That's that euphoria. That's that wonderful feeling and joy that we love to have. But you don't get that by following the feeling. Do you see that? This kind of hearer is superficial in that they just want the emotion of it all, and that's what they're after. And because they're after that, that's all they worry about. That's all they want. They have no desire to be led by the truth, to even know the truth. Just give me those good feelings, whatever you got to do, bring them my way. And in this case, the person follows the Lord superficially simply because they felt good about it in the moment. They sensed it was right, maybe. But here's the issue with this kind of response to Jesus. If emotion is the reason you follow Jesus, then emotion will be the reason you stop following Jesus. When the emotions are not there, you'll leave. And friends, you know as well as I do, every day does not feel like heaven on earth. Every day doesn't feel that way. If you think that the Christian life is just this sort of like, you know, blissful skipping through the meadows of life, and if you follow Jesus, all will be well, and you'll per- your, your emotions will constantly be flourishing and all of that, friends, that is just not reality. The Christian life is a fight. It's a struggle. We, we live every day of our life, and often we look behind us and it's like, where in the world are my feelings? I don't even know where they are. But the truth is here that I am the Lord's, and He's called me to live for Him and to follow Him, and I'm going to do that, regardless of where my feelings might be. Because feelings are, really, they are great liars. Often the thing you feel like doing is the thing you don't need to do. And the thing you, you know, your feelings sort of pulling you in a direction one way or another. Don't you dare do that. And let me give you an example. You probably didn't feel like getting out of bed this morning. But your feelings were saying, oh, just do it. Just lay here. Just lay in bed. You deserve it. Whatever. You know, sort of inflaming that self-focus. And you, if you followed your feelings, you would never go to work. You would never discipline your children. Uh, you would never raise your children. Because, I mean, who feels like that? Right? You, have to, you have to follow what you know is God's will regardless of how you feel about it. Right? So this person, they are superficial 
And they are hyper-emotional. And they follow the Lord simply out of emotionalism. And the problem with that approach is that when the emotions flee, so will you. And if you do that, you, if you flee from Jesus, if you turn away from Jesus, you'll prove that you never really had an authentic faith to begin with. It's 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. True, authentic faith perseveres even when the feelings are not there. Flip over to Luke. Let me wrap all this up. Luke chapter 8. I just want to show you the way that Luke words this contrasted with a sort of superficial here that just sort of pulled around by their feelings and emotion. Luke 8, 15, the parallel is with Mark 4, 20, who says the good soil, or the good soil is the one that bears fruit 30, 60 to 100 fold. Mark just says it that way. Luke, in the parallel account, chapter 8, verse 15, he says it this way, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And notice, they hold it fast and bear fruit with what? Now, perseverance implies difficulty. They hold it fast, implying other people let go. But these people hold it fast and they persevere. And friends, if you come to Jesus... You know, in this sort of superficial, emotional way, if that's what you're after, when life gets hard, as we'll see in verse 17, when life gets hard, you won't hold on. You'll get out. And you will demonstrate that you were never really of the Lord's. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the promises of your word that ensure us, in one sense, that if we follow you, you will never forsake us. That also promises us that we trust you and believe you only because you have worked faith in our hearts as a gift. But Father, we know that from our perspective, from the perspective of human responsibility, you have given us much to do. And Father, we know that there is a type of hearing the word that is purely emotional, and we don't want to be marked by that. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who follow you and understand that the way to Christ is through the cross. It's not easy. It's not smooth. There are challenges and difficulties all along the way, dangers, toils, and snares. But Lord, you are the one who promises to sustain us. So Father, we pray that you would continue to sustain us and that you would help us to hold fast to the promise of the gospel and to persevere even when we don't feel like it. And Father, we pray that you would give us courage uh, and confidence to continue to be faithful sowers of the Word of God, regardless of how people respond, knowing that it is in your hands the responses of men. And Lord, we entrust all of this into your care. Amen.